This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey fam, I'm Jada Pinkett Smith, and this is the Red Table Talk Podcast. All your favorite episodes from the Facebook Watch Show in audio. Produced by Westbrook Audio and iHeartRadio. Please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. In America, we are dealing with so much hate. What makes someone turn violent? An unlikely person is joining the table. You had never had a thought of the people that I'm dehumanizing also are children. He led the largest and most active neo-Nazi group. That's a lot of years spewing hate. Until he met her. I have spent most of my life being afraid of men like that. What was the moment where you realized... Wait a minute. Why did I stay so long? Why did I do this? And you feel really stupid. By three years old, our kids have an adult-like concept of race. Inside the minds of mass shooters. The killers that you've interviewed all had one thing in common. What is it? And the NFL player who took a stand against hate. There was a point in my life where I wouldn't have been able to sit at a table with you. You know what I'm saying? Unless we understand the root of hatred. This will keep happening. So today's going to be... Intense. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. I'm already stressed. In America right now, we're dealing with so much hate that's being expressed in so many different ways. Right. 
You know, white supremacy was deemed like the number one problem. Yeah, <laughs> the number one threat mm -hmm. to, to America. But I've always been so interested in how the human mind even gets to a point where these things are acceptable. Yeah. When someone shoots up a church or when someone shoots up a grocery store. A grocery store. Or a school. Or when someone calls you a nigger to your face. Yeah. Right. Uh, that feels like another level. It is another level. It's insane. And that's why we wanted to do the show today to understand the psychology of hate. Right. So. An award-winning Pakistani filmmaker was so fed up with racist attacks against her, she made the bold decision to turn her camera on the haters. Dia Khan is no stranger to hate. Growing up Muslim in Norway, she was targeted by Muslim extremists who didn't want her speaking out about women's rights. By age 17, she was in so much danger, she fled the country. Dia later received a barrage of very serious death threats from white supremacists when she made comments promoting diversity. She was tired of living her life in fear and made the courageous choice to reach out to the leaders of several hate groups, not to confront them, but to understand them. She bravely sat face to face with America's most vocal white supremacists who are taught to hurt and hate people who look like her. Mexicans flood our land and suck up our benefits. So that's the clan? Yeah, this is a clan tattoo. Yes, I'm a racist. I absolutely despise Jews. Jews and homosexuals. They, I, I think they should be exterminated, every single one of them. <laughs> He's been a member of the white power movement for many years, and previously was a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Ken is exactly the kind of person I've always been afraid of. I've thrown out flyers uh, denouncing Syrian refugees coming over here in the Muslim neighborhoods uh, at the mosque. So as you know, I am a woman of color. And what I want to ask you mm -hmm. is, am I your enemy? You're not subjectively my enemy, but what you are promoting will lead to the, dis the disappearance of my people and my culture. I gotta say right here and now, that's my type of girl. Yes. Thank wow. you. I just Courageous. can't imagine. <laughs> How do you I, keep I your can't. cool, man, when you're sitting with somebody like that? You know, I have spent most of my life feeling abused, persecuted, targeted, victimized, being afraid of men like that. Yeah. But I knew what they wanted from me. They need me to be emotional or mm -hmm. to lose it. Mm -hmm. And I did can't. not want to give them that. Yes. To me, that was crucial. Yes. When I started getting all these death threats, the police were like, you need to take this very seriously yes. because the threats ended up on very violent racist websites. So I had to make a decision. Yep. Do I be afraid or do I make a choice that I've never made before, which is to go and confront them, but not meet them to argue and to fight and to push back like that but to sit with them and see, can they recognize my humanity? Mm. And can I recognize theirs? But when Absolutely someone not. says that they think that a group of people should be exterminated, I just can't see a world where you're like, oh, all right. The thing is, you are thinking of this very rationally and very logically. That's my it's, problem. It's fear and hate is not rational. The way a lot of people process the fear is that they have to defend themselves. Yes. Yeah. So they don't perceive people of color as 
victims. They perceive themselves as the victim. victim. So they need to tell themselves that they're doing the right thing. And the only way you can justify violence and justify hatred is by putting yourself in the place of, I am under attack. Mm -hmm. yeah. My survival is on the line. So I have to defend myself, my people, yeah. my family against all these invaders. A lot of my yeah. friends are like, oh, why do you keep, you know, filming with these crazy people? I mean, they're just, forget them. I mean, they're just decision. beyond any kind of approach. Forget it. Yeah. I have to say, it does feel like they're beyond help. I used to be like that. I've gone to anti-racist protests most of my life. I have flipped them off. I have shouted at them. I have thrown stuff at them. And it felt great, but it didn't do anything. Yeah. I've done that my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I have accomplished more by sitting face to face with these guys than any of that. Hate is not something that you can confront with my facts against your facts because it's emotional. You have to be able to reach somebody's heart. Yeah. And even the heart of somebody who feels very, very dark and yeah. very, very lost. You have to look for the light. So while filming, this yeah. was really interesting. It's hard, right? It's I'm like, sitting here like, oh, ah. I know, but we're going to keep going. So maybe we can get, you guys could get some more. <laughs> Why, why am, we're, we're on two opposite spectrums and they're like, they're like on the same vibe. It just feels like they are not deserving. Now, yeah. while filming, Ugh. Dia met Jeff Scoop, leader of the largest and most active neo-Nazi group in the United States. Ooh. We're a white civil rights organization here in America. We're white nationalists. Just as Martin Luther King did for the blacks, our mission is pretty much the same. We feel that the white race in general is under a full assault. We feel that the whites are gonna be a minority here in this country. Justice for the car brothers, it's right here! We must secure the existence of our race and a future for white children. We'd like a homeland of our own for white people. Why did you move to Detroit? perfect recruitment grounds. Anytime you're in an area where the economy is suffering, it's somewhere that our message resonates with the people. I joined Jeff at their next event, the biggest far-right rally in recent years in Charlottesville. We are the forces of light and civilization, and we are fighting against the forces of darkness. Get a heart attack! A mile away from us, this happens. Anti-racist protester Heather Hare is killed by a car driven by a far-right protester. Jeff says many of his followers think jobs are being taken by immigrants. He thinks it's part of a plot against the white race. I decide to show him a photo of me with my father taken at an anti-extremism rally when I was six years old. So that's my dad. Oh, wow. And that's me. <laughs> People who represent what you represent made a six-year-old child feel hated. The movement that you are a part of has real-life effect on people like me. How does it make you feel? Uncomfortable. I don't wow. like it. We are still a whites-only organization. You're not going to convince me different. Jeff has come a long way since then. Which is why we allowed him into our home. What made you decide 
at first to have a conversation with Dia? Ooh, well, typically in my role at that time, when I'm involved in the movement, being involved in media stuff was a way to get out the message. Yeah. So for me, it was propaganda. Right. It was an opportunity to spread the word. What was the moment where you realized, wait a minute? There was a lot of things that she said, but specifically what really, really got to me was when you're involved in these kind of movements, a lot of the people think that they're doing something good, something noble, something honorable. They're fighting for their people. Absolutely. They think they think that way. I'm yep. not saying it's right. It's certainly not. But that's how they think. That's the psychology of it. And when she was talking to me about how she felt as a child, mm -hmm. how racism, how hatred made her feel diminished or less than, mm -hmm. something inside of me snapped. It felt like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. Right. I could literally sense her pain. Wow. And that didn't sit well with me. Here's this wonderful person sitting across from me telling a very humanistic story, a very personal story. And I think back to my own children and the reasons why I was involved in the movement. If it's affecting her in that manner, She's just one person. Right. How many millions of people is it affecting in that way? How can I reconcile that? So in my mind, I'm trying to justify it. Maybe it's not about hate. I kept telling myself that. Right. But it is. Right. It truly is. Was that the first time you had had contact with a person of color in that way? In that way, the very human aspect, yes. So you've got an opportunity to feel the humanity is that it? Yes, that yeah. is absolutely it. When, right. when you go into these type of movements and you get involved in, say, far-right extremism, yeah. you start dehumanizing other people. Once you start dehumanizing others, you lose your humanity in the process. None right. of them see that, but that's what it is right. when you process So before threat. this moment, when talking to Dia, in your mind, you had never had a thought process of the people that I'm dehumanizing you know, like also our children in this day and age, that never really crossed your mind until that moment? You compartmentalize that stuff, yep. and it's a really good question. You look back and you go, how, why didn't I figure this out? Where was that disconnect? And you're in this echo chamber, or it's like a bubble is the way I, I explained it, and everybody you know is in there, and they reinforce those belief systems. Yeah. So a lot of times when people on the outside are pushing back at that and saying, this is wrong, this is hate, we, we all know that, everybody at the table knows that. But to the extremist, they're like, nope, I'm right because you're all pushing back. Yeah. And Dia's approach was trying to understand that. Totally. And posing questions to get the person to start questioning themselves. What about this? Or why, why don't you look at it this way? And then it starts the gears turning. And that was very conscious on my part as well, is not trying to uh, condemn him or fight him or try to out-argue him. Because if I was to do that, then it would close. Yeah. He mm -hmm. would become hardened and he would double down yeah, on his he would views. Double down. And I'm yeah. looking for a crack. I know it's there. I have to somehow locate it. And as soon as you find it, then you try to keep chipping and chipping yeah. and chipping. Was there anything in your own childhood? I didn't have a, a bad childhood growing up. So I don't think it was that. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to figure out what led you down that path in the first place. So for me, my grandfather fought in Hitler's army in World War II. Yeah. Now, my family was not for this stuff. They were actually against it and tried desperately for years to get me out. But it was wow. that fascination with his, 
history, my grandfather and my great uncles fought, that was the opening to the rabbit hole. That was the entry point. I don't blame anybody for it. It was my own fault. Yeah. I, I take full responsibility for it. And my involvement in that life caused my family great irreparable harm. Uh, my right. mother's career was destroyed, and uh, it really, really damaged my family a lot. Wow. So when you decided to remove yourself as you had this new awakening, you had a lot of amends to make. Yeah. How did that go? Most of the damage that I did, my rhetoric, and that the, the hateful stuff that I spewed for so long was to minority communities, and right. especially my hatred was directed at Jewish community right. in particular. Mm -hmm. So since I've been out, I went to the Jewish community. I met with the Simon Wiesenthal Center, who I'm now a consultant for today. Named after a survivor of four different concentration camps during the Holocaust, who then became a prominent Nazi hunter, the Simon Wiesenthal Center is a global organization that confronts anti-Semitism, hate, and terrorism. The center uses Jeff to educate students, teachers, and law enforcement about how people become radicalized and what modern anti-Semitism looks like. There's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of shame and yeah. embarrassment um, having lived that life, so I, I try to help wherever I can. Right. I run a nonprofit organization called Beyond Barriers that okay. deals with extremist disengagements. We're bringing people out of those organizations all the time. My passion is with the schools. Right. If we can get young people to confront biases, really what a lot of hate is based on is fear. To get past those fears, that's where we can make a difference. So where do you feel as though those fears come from, specifically like dealing with young people? Is it something that's taught in the home? It can be. If, if it's taught in the home, it's more difficult for them to overcome because they're right. hearing that garbage from their parents Parent. or their mm -hmm. right. family members. Very, you know, old anti-Semitic tropes and, and things like that. You know, you're talking about going into the schools, but what did you do to change your own thinking? You were in this life for how long? 27 years total. Yeah. <laughs> A lifetime, a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of years spewing hate. How did you reform yourself? So there was people that helped me. I'd met a man that works with me today uh, by the name of Daryl Davis. And he's a black musician, uh, right. played with Chuck Berry. He talked about how racism and hate affected him as a child, and it, it, it didn't sit right. Daryl was a really important figure in working through those things. Daryl Davis is an internationally known R&B artist and activist who stands up to hate by engaging with members of the KKK and other extremist groups. He has helped hundreds of people confront their deeply rooted racism. Wow. When I first left, I call it my decompression period. Yeah. Where mm -hmm. you feel like your brain and everything is going shh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just like a sponge almost because you're going why did I stay so long? Why did I do this? And you feel really stupid and ignorant. And then you want to figure out, how can I fix this? Yeah. But that first six months, yeah. especially, was so difficult because you, you, there was so much to process. And then going to work trying to repair some of that damage done and learning more about different yeah, people. It was almost like re-educating yourself. Yeah. Having that first experience going to a synagogue and talking to everybody there 
the outpouring of love and compassion and forgiveness, I didn't have any right to ask for forgiveness, which I didn't. I, I still don't feel I have that right to ask. Right. But people came up and hugged me. It just blew me away. It was really, I'm sure, part of the healing process, the transformation, Absolutely. and being able to deprogram the idea that these people are not human. Exactly. I'm still learning every single day to, to be a better person. Yeah. And I'll be doing that for the rest of my life. I can't imagine. It must be rough. Right. So according to the FBI, Jewish people in America who are only 2% of the population are the target of more than half of all religious hate crimes. Every year we document anti-Semitic incidents. In 2021, we tallied 2,700 plus anti-Semitic incidents. The highest number ever. This includes harassment, vandalism, and assault. And we've been doing this for 40-something years. So we are in a moment now where the data is telling us that something is not normal. It's trending in the wrong direction. Social media and the ability for uh, the normalization of hatred, including anti-Semitism, to spread is, is key. When you look at FBI hate crime data, we are at very high levels. The truth is, the FBI hate crime data doesn't even, you know, scratch the surface. FBI data undercounts it. We have also seen a series of mass shootings in this country, some targeting the Jewish community, others targeting African-American community, the Hispanic community. And when you're looking at, you know, the deadliest year against the trans community, the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents reported to ADL, we need to ask ourselves, what is happening? Why is hate becoming so common and normalized? White supremacy? and hatred knows no borders. So, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is the director of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of the new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Welcome to the table. Dr. Kendi, how did you feel about what Jeff was sharing at the table? What you shared shows both the power of the human being yeah. to change, yeah. but then also courage to begin this process. Can you give us some insight about where hate comes from? Scholars have consistently shown that no one is born right. hateful. Right. No right. one is born holding sexist or racist or anti-Semitic ideas, but kids are born into an unequal world. Mm -hmm. and, and they're born into a world in which they're taught that certain people have more because they are more. Right. And, and other people have less because there are less. And then as they sort of come of age and people start telling them that the source of their struggles are those other people right. <laughs> who yeah. don't look like them, that causes them to then hate them. So in a way, kids in our society, we almost provide them with this unfortunate foundation to hate. Yep. Yeah. The idea of just needing someone to blame. Exactly, and I think it's important for us to just get at the root. Right. The, the roots of bigotry are very powerful people who are instituting policies and rules mm -hmm. that lead to inequities and inequality between groups. Mm -hmm. And then those powerful people produce hate to then justify those inequities. Mm -hmm. And then people consume cycle. those mm -hmm. ideas. And that causes them to become ignorant and hateful. So probably one of the most obvious examples during the enslavement era. Yeah. Right. You, you had people who were enslaving black people to make money. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And then they produced 
racist ideas that said these people were fit for enslavement. People then consumed those ideas yeah. mm -hmm. and believed them and became hateful. That's happened with sexism. That's right. happened with, oh, poor people are poor because they don't want to work hard, mm -hmm. as right. opposed to the policies that people put in place the that barriers, made it. <laughs> the right. barriers. Exactly. Like, that's the root. Yeah. It's all steeped in fear. We all have our fears, right? And I fear. think, like, when, when, when talking about the psychology of hate, there's something that can always be addressed in us all in understanding how not to add to the energy of yes. hate. It's a really deep subject, and it's something we all have to participate in. If you don't have the resources, I think it's very hard. I've filmed with this other neo-Nazi. He's reformed as well now. And one of the things he said, he said, as a child, he was beaten by his stepfather like he would beat a grown man. And he said this group finally recruited him and said, you know, we have your back. And one night he said they went out looking for somebody to, to beat. And he said, I started beating this guy. He said, I looked in his eyes and he said, I saw something that I'd never seen before. And he said, I loved it. And I'm going, what was it? He said, fear. Oh. He said, you know, for me, somebody who was afraid my entire life, now somebody, now somebody else is afraid, afraid of, of me. me. There you go. I hate to say this. I really hate to say this. Some people feel powerless, just like he did, and don't do that. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yes. So that's yeah. also the part that yes. my mind just malfunction. Like, it just, I don't understand. So I have grappled with this very same thing. I filmed with Muslim extremists, and they're talking about the racism that they feel, the alienation that they felt. And I'm sitting there going, me too. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too, me too. And then I was left with that question too. And I was going, why do I pick up a camera and you pick up a gun? What is the difference? Because on top of all the stuff, I'm a woman. So I've also had to deal with all of that. You don't see me strapping a bomb to me, yeah. what? Yeah. And finally I came to the realization, it matters who shows up in your life when you're at your most broken, mm -hmm. at your most vulnerable, yeah. who do you have? Yeah, yeah. That will set the path for, for the gun or the camera. Mm -hmm. 100%. That's a good point. What I think is really important also to say is this is trying to understand extremist mindset and violent people's mindset is not to justify it, excuse it, or diminish it. And we cannot underestimate the devastation that it causes. And mm -hmm. I also think it's really important to say, I don't think that it is the burden and responsibility of people of color to have to reform white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Why should it be the responsibility of oppressed people, of abused right. women to have, for example, to reform the guy who beats her? I agree that it, it shouldn't be the responsibility of Absolutely you know, people of color particularly in, in white supremacist spaces, the people who can be the most powerful are the white people. Yeah. Right. If a white person stands up and says, mm. no, that's wrong, <laughs> right. there's going to be a certain level of respect yeah. shown to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Dr. Kendi, you have ways to raise an anti-racist child. What are they? We have to teach empathy. Yeah. But it's important for us to be clear that there are people who are only empathetic to people who look like them. Mm, yeah. And so we also have to teach kids how to be critical thinkers. Yeah. You know, we have to teach kids how to ask questions. Mm -hmm. We also have to make sure our kids are being raised in a diverse environment. Mm. Yeah. So not just the neighborhood and right. the schools, but the toy box, yeah. mm -hmm. the library, yeah. even your friends. So yes. one study found that the racial attitudes of, of white children are more correlated 
to the number of friends of color that a white mother has mm. than the white mother's racial attitudes. Wow. I have a six-year-old daughter, Imani, and of course I, I want her to, to see her brown skin is beautiful. That's I, I right. want her to understand her kinky hair is beautiful, but I also want her to understand that people with differently shaped eyes are just as beautiful yeah, as she is. Exactly. And so even if you're raising a black child, yes. it's still important. It's yeah. so Absolutely. important. Absolutely. Part of the challenge is we don't really know just how early kids are learning these ideas. Yeah. One scholar found that by three years old, three, as for, yeah. our yeah. kids have an adult-like concept of race. Yeah. Yeah. Another scholar found that most white preschoolers choose a black person as looking bad. Mm -hmm. oh. Then we think, like, how could kids so young think these ideas? Well, racist ideas are extremely Everywhere. simple. Yeah. Yes. Dark is bad. Right. Light is it's good. good. Yeah. Yes. At this moment, when we're seeing all of the white supremacists who are engaging in mass shootings, Government officials are, are documenting the number of white supremacists who are targeting children yeah. online. Yes. Particularly through multiplayer video games, on memes, yeah. targeting through direct messages. Parents and teachers are trying to decide whether they're going to talk to their kids about race. Mm. They don't understand. It's already being talked yeah. about. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So the question exactly. is, who do you want to talk yeah. to your kids about right. race? Right, right, right. right. That's right. the real question. Yes, right. absolutely. That's real talk. That's a good point. That's a really good point. We're going to listen to this mom. It's really important. Her New York Times op-ed, Racists Are Recruiting, Watch Your White Sons, went viral. Here is her message. As a mom with two teen boys, I was watching over my son's shoulder as he was scrolling through social media. And what I didn't expect was that I would see racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, anti-trans, very anti-woman content, not from them, but in their timelines. And it was disturbing in a way that was super subtle, things that they may not have noticed. I was like, wait, 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 go back. I was so alarmed because it was so low key. And by hitting it, he had favorited it. All of a sudden, their pages were just full of this stuff that was really problematic. It was terrifying. That's why I wrote that New York Times op-ed. I just wanted other parents to know there's somebody out there that might be wanting to indoctrinate your kid into hateful ideology. That just blew my mind. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, that's terrible. You know, white parents think, well, I don't want to, like, talk to them about race because I don't want to make them racist right. when they're being talked to by white supremacists. Right. You have to understand that. Also, in the past, like, four or five years, a lot of the shootings have been done by younger white men. Yeah. Yes. We have Dr. Jillian Peterson, the forensic psychologist who conducted the largest study of mass shooters in the United States. Dr. Jillian, can you tell us the killers that you've interviewed all had one thing in common? Yeah, the similar goal is always to cause as much destruction and death and pain and fear as possible because that's what gets your anger and your grievance into the headlines. Yeah. The perpetrators, if you go back in their background to figure out how does an 18-year-old 
kid get to the point where he's so angry that he's going to go out and murder as many people as possible? How do we find that prior to kind of that hate, there is this self-hate that you see these perpetrators who are lonely, who are depressed, who are actively suicidal. Many of them have attempted suicide before. And then they hit this point. One perpetrator's sister described it to us. She said it stopped being, what's wrong with me? and started being, what's wrong with everybody else? And whose fault is this, right? And it's that flip that now they're going on these dark internet sites, they're falling down the rabbit hole, they're studying other mass shooters. And mass shootings are meant to be watched, they're meant to be witnessed. It's a way to have this notoriety that they don't have in their life. It's a way to gain this sense of power where everyone is now talking about them. Something. Dr. Jillian said it was just so powerful. People went from hating themselves to hating other people. Yeah. So the totality of that is that people are the problem. And right. that's what we're taught, that people are the source of our pain. Right. Mm. As opposed to policies, as opposed to conditions. I'm glad you just pointed that out yeah. because that's, that's real. It's like we're always targeting each other at some level. Dr. Jillian, why is it that the majority of mass shooters have been young white males, specifically when it comes to going into schools? What is that about? So in schools, the most likely perpetrator is gonna be 15 to 18 year old student of that school who is white, who's actively suicidal, and who's usually using their parents' guns. A lot of them study other shooters, in particular the Columbine shooting. On April 20th, 1999, two 12th graders at Columbine High School went on a shooting rampage, murdering 12 of their classmates and one teacher. Millions watched in horror as it unfolded on live television. It became one of the most publicized tragedies in U.S. history. You were getting shot all around me. <laughs> there was a guy at a table right next to, us, next to me and her, and they just shot him. Before Columbine, school shootings were extremely rare. This horrific massacre inspired the so-called Columbine Effect, a disturbing blueprint for future school shooters. Wow. They really kind of see themselves in those shooters. They identify with them. They, in some cases, become obsessed. They go visit the school. They spend their time on these dark websites that really celebrate those shootings. And so I think that validation and seeing how those Columbine shooters ended up on the front page of Time magazine, it's that quest for notoriety that they're looking for. Yeah, I think it's important not to name the shooters. The media can talk about it, right. can give all the details, but just not mention the name. The far right and the extremism, that's one of the things they're looking for, to be martyrs and to, to make copycats and mm -hmm. things like that. In Buffalo, that was a specific target, right? But it seems like it's not always like a racial target that I just want to get as many people as I can. Yeah, perpetrators choose a target that represents their grievance with the world. So school shooters are typically upset with their classmates and their peers. Workplace shooters have typically just been fired and are angry at the workplace. And then there's people who decide that the source of 
everything wrong in their lives is a racial group or a religious group or it's right. women. And so they choose sites that represent those things. God. But I think we have this idea that people who do this are these monsters and they're on the outside. But really, they're kids in our kids' schools. They're in our workplaces. Mm. They're our neighbors. And so mm. we need to all be thinking about this. They're people we know. My thought is I've heard and seen a lot of terrible things that happen to black kids in school in general, but I've never seen a black kid try to shoot up a school. Mm -hmm. You're basically saying the pressures that you see that young black people go face. Yeah, face, the pressures that, that young black people face, specifically in the education. We don't ex explode that way. Yeah. And we, don't, we don't express our frustration it's, in that way. It's very interesting to me. That's a really good point. There's kind of this white male entitlement to what I've owed in this world. I expect to have a girlfriend and be wealthy and be respected or have resources. And so when I don't get those things, my mm -hmm. anger and rage is very intense. Call it an entitled wow. grievance, right? It's I'm angrier because I have a different expectation. The world owes me this and I haven't gotten it, so it must be somebody's fault. And we as Black people definitely don't have that. But that's a very deep thing. Yeah. Entitled grievance. grievance. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine if you're a white child, that's just the constant, consistent <laughs> message. Mm -hmm. You're special because you're white. And then you enter into the world and the world is like, you ain't special. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that, that collides. Yeah, that's yeah. very interesting. There's an other elephant in the room. We're focusing on the white part of it. But there's another consistent thing here. What about the maleness of this? Why are so many of the men? Because to me, there's also a crisis of masculinity and its relationship to violence that has to be spoken about as well. So we have studied 180 perpetrators of mass shootings who killed four or more people in a public space. And of those 180, we have two women in the sample. So it's 99% male. And to be honest, it's not that different than all homicides, which are over 92% male. There's good psychological research that shows when men feel shame or powerless or anger or sadness, they go out with it, right? Their harm goes out. out. And when women feel those same yeah, things, it goes in. Yeah. So higher rates of self-harm and anxiety and depression and eating disorders and all those, that's how it comes out sort of differently between the genders. Right, so that men tend to explode, women tend to implode. implode. Yeah. yeah. Got exactly, yeah. yes. That needs to be discussed <laughs> at deeper length. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, Dr. Jillian, you say that mass shootings are preventable. How so? In our research, we came up with 33 different potential solutions. Things like holding social media companies accountable for the hateful rhetoric that happens yes. on their platforms. Yeah. Teaching ourselves how to spot the warning signs of this and knowing where to report it. I would say if only somebody had gotten involved at when he was doing this at 10, if only when this 17 year old told his teacher, like in Buffalo, he was thinking about a murder suicide, right? If only, if only, Community. and none of those solutions okay. we identified are perfect on their own. But when you start layering them on top of each other, that's when you start seeing progress. Whew. Wow. All right. When NFL lineman Zach Banner saw that another player posted quotes attributed to Adolf Hitler, he knew he had to say something. He made this video that went viral. 
There's a common misbelief amongst black and brown people that uh, Jewish people are just like any other uh, white race. They don't understand that Jewish people deal with the same amount of hate. And uh, I'm not trying to get emotional right now, but when we talk about the Black Lives Matter and we talk about elevating ourselves, we can't do that while stepping on the back of other people. Welcome to the table. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so what made you post that video? When a colleague messes up, mm -hmm. you, you have to hold them accountable. Right. I think everyone in the workplace should have that type of mentality, yep. especially when we talk about these difficult subjects. I saw a tweet about anti-Semitic comments, and I had to look up what anti-Semitism was. Mm -hmm. Wow, right. And I think that's important to be able to tell the difference between different hates, right. different mm -hmm. hates that we deal with as black and brown people, different hates that Muslims have to deal with, Jews. Yeah. I didn't even think I could say Jew because every time we hear it, it's in a negative connotation. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to understand not all Jews are white and fair skin. No, There's black not. Jews. And taking that time to do that minimal amount of research and speaking out and saying, obviously, this isn't correct, we can't do this. Mm -hmm. And I was a stealer for five years. In 2018, in Pittsburgh, somebody walked in the Tree of Life Synagogue and said, all Jews must die and gun down 10 plus people. Right. Those little Jewish boys and girls cried the same tears that the, mm -hmm. I did in second grade when I read about the Klan bombing that church in Birmingham mm -hmm. and killing those four little black girls. Yeah. You talked about empathy earlier. It's surprising to me when people aren't empathetic. Yeah. And how hard it is to create empathy in people, yeah. especially as an adult. Yeah. 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 But it's also important to understand that I educated myself. Mm. Jews welcomed me in their homes for their Shabbat dinners and into their temple. Jeff, can I ask you a question? Just in the life that you lived in the past, what was it about your organization that felt as though Jews had to be targeted mostly? The belief in, in that type of environment is that they control all the banks, they control all the media. Right. It's not based in reality, but right. these are the old Those stereotypes. The stereotypes. Yeah. And it's easier to place the blame on someone else rather than take take account for it and go, you know what, I need to work harder. Right. I need to try more. It's easier to just say, it's, it's their fault. black people's fault. Right. It's Jewish, Jewish people's, people's fault. fault. It's mm -hmm. Hispanic people's right. fault. It's not accurate, it's not true, but it's easier for them. We do that in our interpersonal relationships, in our friendships, yes. in our romantic yeah. relationships. Yes. Yeah. Things go haywire, and then we don't sit back to say, wait, I said that thing, or I did that thing, and then yes. went, it's just like, no, you made it go haywire. <laughs> you said you yes. loved me, and now it's gone to Yes. <laughs> it's like, yo. Yes. Yo. We but do that with I people mean. we say we love. That's even. what yes. I'm trying to say, yes. that we all have seeds, and that some are more extreme than others. Yes. You know what I but mean? But it's on but the same continuum. Yeah. Zach, what you did by going to meet someone different from you is something anyone can do today. Everyone can. One of the best ways we can do it is break bread. Black mm. people, Jews, yeah. Muslims, I urge you to keep welcoming those people that you disagree with naturally. Yeah. There was a point in my life where I wouldn't have been able to sit at a table with you. I was Same just, I was here. Just gonna say, Same was here. So <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I had a little bit of a thing I mean, earlier. That old him <laughs> made me cringe yeah, as well. Because yeah. mm. I can't see how you would want to exterminate somebody and also try to keep a culture when you didn't have culture before we came in the first place. Right. Mm. And I, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And I don't say that in, in, in terms of conflict. I just say that in understanding 
my defects and your defects. Exactly. And it, it, it was a beautiful learning moment. Because even as a mother sitting here, I was like, hmm. well, should I switch seats? And I said, no. <laughs> if two years before, Somebody yeah. would have said to me, you're going to be sitting next to Jeff, the Nazi guy. He's <laughs> going to be your friend. You're going to consider him to be your brother. Right. I would not only laugh at you, I would feel insulted yeah. that you would think I could do that with a guy like that. Totally. Right. right? And just like you were saying, when we take that time to have the courage to step outside of our comfort zone and just to get to know mm. the spirit and the humanity of people, yeah. even when they might not even see their own humanity. Yeah. You know? So this has been a beautiful... I'm telling you, this was a gangster tape of the day. You two? The two no. of you? Yeah. You, you having these conversations are uplifting and, like, closing it. And what you said was absolutely beautiful. That's what can make people change. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you so Thank much. You. All Thank you. We really appreciate it's it. It's powerful to actually witness it and see someone who has made the change. And before we go, we'd like to leave everyone with some hope. Meet these special young people trying to break the cycle of hate. I'm fighting to protect women of color and our bodily autonomy. I'm fighting for the mental health of black men. I'm fighting to uproot any and all systems of white supremacy and encourage other young black and brown people to have the nerve to do the same. I love to be able to advocate for immigrant communities uh, and migrant communities. I've lived undocumentedly for the majority of my life. My entire life struggle has showed me that I need to stand boldly and be able to create change that I want to see my kids grow up in. The changes I'm fighting for are important because our rights are continuously coming under attack. If I do not do this work, my rights and the rights of the people that are closest to me will be stripped away. And I cannot allow that to happen. I care about making change because I care about my community. And when I see someone getting hurt, I know that I need to do something. You may know me as Little Miss Flint, even though I'm not so little anymore. The change I am fighting for is clean water because no kid in America should have to deal with having toxic drinking water. When people think that it's just Flint that has toxic drinking water, they're wrong. America has a water crisis, not just Flint. As an Afro-Cuban trans and queer woman, I use my art for liberation of queer and trans Black people by creating meaningful, impactful, and authentic representations of my community in the media. We have social media. One post and a movement is going viral. We can literally text our friends about where the next protest is. Yat eh. That is hello in my Diné language. I am from the Diné Nation. The change I am creating is important because it is rooted in indigenous worldview that we are relatives to Mother Earth and we must fight to protect her. To join the Red Table Talk family and become a part of the conversation, follow us at facebook.com slash redtabletalk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Table Talk podcast, produced by Facebook Watch, Westbrook Audio, and iHeartRadio.